Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 27 called The Sons of Constantine. In the last episode we heard about the booming 4th century for the Roman Empire when the economy got back into shape helped by Constantine's monetary reform with the end of debasement and a return to the gold standard with his new gold coin called the Solidus. Now we all know that Constantine's reign was a watershed moment for the Roman Empire since he founded Constantinople effectively as the new capital of the empire and, of course, he also converted to Christianity. But what happened after he died? This is actually one of the least talked about parts of Roman history, a bit like the crisis of the 3rd century, largely, I think, because of the lack of source material. But despite this problem, let's now turn to this subject... On the 22nd of May, AD 337, Constantine died just outside Diocletian's former capital of Nicomedia. He is thought to have been about 65 years old and had ruled as one of the tetrarchs, that is one of the co-emperors, since AD 306 until he became sole emperor in 324. In his last days, he'd been preparing for a campaign against Rome's oldest and most dangerous foe, the Sasanian Persians, until soon after the Christian feast of Easter, he had fallen ill. He left the city of Constantinople that he had founded 13 years before and crossed the Bosphorus, aiming to reach the hot baths near the town of Helenopolis, dedicated to his beloved mother, Helena, hoping they might revive him. But when he was praying in a church, nearby that his mother had built in honour of Lucian the Apostle, he felt worse and realised that death was approaching. Although Constantine was a Christian, he'd never been baptised, and now he hastily called his bishops to perform the rites that he'd delayed for so long. Quite why he'd refrained from baptism until this moment remains a mystery, but it was not unknown in his age to delay it for as long as possible, since it was commonly seen as a final chance to absolve oneself of all sin before entering the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps Constantine was also influenced by the knowledge that he had sinned many times during his turbulent life. For in truth, above all else, he was a ruthless soldier and politician who'd killed many of his rivals and had even ordered the execution of one of his four sons as well as his second wife for reasons that have never been fully clarified but which may have stemmed from fear of rivalry with his son and the suspected infidelity of his wife. As he approached death, while Constantine's baptism may have been uppermost in his own mind, in this regard he was alone, for the overriding question in the minds of everyone else was his succession. And the answer was something that has long baffled historians, just as much, it seems, as it did his contemporaries. For despite the fact that Constantine had spent his entire life battling political rivals en route to securing sole control of the empire for himself, he decided to leave the empire in the hands of not just one emperor, 
but five. This pentarchy, if we can call it that, comprised his three sons and two of their relatives. His eldest son was also called Constantine, and he was to have Gaul, Spain and Britain, the same territories which Constantine himself had acquired in 306, when he'd first become a tetrarch. His second son, Constantius, was to have the east, and his third, Constans, the central part of the empire, with Italy and Illyria. But Constantine also had a half-brother called Dalmatius who had always been a loyal supporter and it was to his two sons that he also bequeathed part of the empire. These were Flavius Julius Dalmatius who was to have part of Illyria comprising the lower Danube lands and his younger brother Hannibalianus who was to control the northern part of Anatolia including Cappadocia. Why did Constantine divide the empire into five parts? It remains one of the greatest mysteries of his reign, and perhaps the real motive was that by dividing power among his sons and relatives, he could at least retain their loyalty during his own lifetime. His half-brother Dalmatius and his two sons had proved their loyalty by suppressing minor revolts in the eastern half of the empire in Cyprus and Cilicia. However, if his succession plan was truly motivated by such short-term strategies, then this reinforces the view expressed by many of his contemporaries as well as later historians that he was nothing more than a shallow ruler interested in little other than his own well-being. For the truth was plain to see for all – Constantine's succession plan was an unhelpful division of power that was more likely than not to lead to internal dispute. And that is exactly what happened. It was Constantine's second son, Constantius, who was the closest to Constantinople when his father died, and he rushed to the city to bury his father in the Church of the Holy Apostles, the magnificent building built by Constantine only a few years before as his intended mausoleum. But there any intention to comply with his father's wishes ended, for a gruesome event occurred in complete contradiction of his father's wishes called the Massacre of the Princes, when all of the dead emperor's relatives except for his three sons and three of his cousins were rounded up and executed. These included two of the five co-emperors chosen by Constantine himself, that is Dalmatius and Hannibalianus, as well as seven cousins. What evidence we have points the accusing finger for this bloodletting firmly at Constantius himself. However, it appears the massacre was also supported by some of the most influential army commanders in the empire, who probably wanted to eliminate Dalmatius's two sons, since they were both proven soldiers and, as such, were quite capable of making an attempt to seize control of the army, especially because all of Constantine's sons were too young to have any meaningful military experience. Probably what happened was that 
On the news of Constantine's death, some of the senior army leaders persuaded Constantius that by eliminating Dalmatius, Hannibalianus and the other relatives, civil war would be avoided, which indeed might have been true. Even if Constantius was manipulated in this way, however, the ultimate responsibility for ordering the butchery must still lie with him. And it is perhaps revealing that many years later, as he faced the prospect of his own death, Constantius blamed his inability to bear children as divine punishment for this crime of murder when he was only 21 years old. Once it was decided to proceed with the grisly executions, a pretext was needed. So a story was invented that Dalmatius and Hannibalianus had poisoned Constantine with the help of the seven cousins. Although we don't know the precise details of what happened, all these men were rounded up and executed. After this purge, the army commanders were happy to swear loyalty to the three of Constantine's sons, knowing that these young Augusti were dependent on their support. However, it's worth noting that two relatives were spared, both of whom would play a part in future Roman history. These were the 11-year-old Gallus and the 6-year-old Julian, both of whom were probably deemed too young to pose a threat. Julian would, of course, later become one of the most celebrated of all Roman emperors as Julian the Apostate, the man who tried to turn back the clock on Christianity and restore Rome's pagan traditions. But let us return to our narrative. For a while, the three sons cooperated. They divided the empire roughly along the lines Constantine had indicated. Constantius II, as he was called, was the primary beneficiary of the purge, the massacre of the princes, since he took over Dalmatius's son's lands, giving him full control of the east as well as the city of Constantinople. The West was divided between his two brothers, with Constantine II, the eldest brother, receiving Gaul, Spain and Britain, as his father had wanted, while Constance had Illyria, Italy and Africa. However, this fraternal agreement was based on a precarious bargain, since, as the eldest of the three brothers, Constantine II felt that he should have had the largest part of the empire, whereas the agreement clearly gave this to Constantius. Consequently, Constantine only accepted the division, provided he was recognised as the guardian over the youngest brother, Constans, who was only 17 in 337. However, the longevity of this agreement became increasingly precarious as Constans grew older and neared the age of 21, when he would come of age and not require a guardian. Nervous about this, Constantine II struck first and demanded that Constans should give him North Africa. Constans was initially intimidated by his brother and he agreed to do this, but the request meant handing over Carthage, which was the breadbasket for Rome. 
And if Constantine controlled Carthage, it would not be long before he demanded Italy as well. So Constans decided to stand up for himself and refused to concede anything. The tension between the two started to rise like heated mercury. Then, when Constans reached the age of 21 in 340, he decided to break once and for all with his bullying older brother and refused to acknowledge him as his guardian any longer. This was too much for Constantine II. The result was civil war. Constantine invaded Italy in 340. However, what could have been another deeply damaging internal Roman conflict was avoided when Constantine was suddenly killed in an ambush outside Aquileia in northern Italy. No doubt, as surprised as anyone by this, Constans emerged as the victor and assumed full control of the West. Now the empire was divided between just him and Constantius. Finally, Constantine's unsettling succession plan between five co-emperors had settled down to a much more manageable two. Meanwhile, While the West had been boiling up for a full-scale civil war, in the East, Constantius II had been fully engaged fighting Rome's single greatest enemy, Persia. And now I think it's worth pausing to catch up on developments with the Sasanian Persians, since they've been relatively quiet during both Diocletian's and Constantine's reigns. But now, at the time of Constantine's death, they suddenly re-emerged as the greatest threat to Rome's newly restored Pax Romana. Unfortunately, our sources for Persian history are frustratingly slim. Aside from the magnificent rock carvings in the royal necropolis at Nakshe Rostam, near to Persepolis in the modern province of Fars in Iran, that record in particular the exploits of Shapur I, we are mostly reliant on Roman written sources. One of the main mysteries is the decline in Sasanian activity against Rome in the decades after Shapur's defeat and capture of the Emperor Valerian in AD 260 at the Battle of Edessa, when the Sasanians seemed poised to take control of Rome's eastern empire. We talked about this in episode 13, and to recap, the meagre evidence we have suggests that Shapur faced a trio of problems comprising, first and foremost, Palmyra's sudden and unexpected rise to prominence and its defeat, of course, of Shapur's army in Syria. Second, and perhaps because of this Palmyran victory, Shapur seems to have faced growing opposition to his rule from the Persian nobility. Third, there was the issue of his own failing health. He died in 270, and although we know next to nothing about his medical history, it seems that he just lost his energy that had been so key to his success. His two sons succeeded him and fared little better, both Hormizd, who reigned from 270 to 271, and Baram I, 271-274, were both undermined by internal disputes. Barham II, who was 
Bahram I's son, then reigned for longer from 274 to 293, but he also struggled to maintain his authority and posed little threat to Rome. One reason cited in Roman sources for Bahram II's weakness was a Sasanian civil war with a breakaway province which historians have called the Kushano-Sasanian Kingdom. This clue opens the door to an intriguing explanation for Sasanian Persia's weakness in this period. For the Kushano-Sasanian Kingdom was the old and important Persian province of Bactria. Located in modern Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, this region north of the Hindu Kush mountain range had always been home to a fiercely independent Persian nobility who had a long history of militarisation with, for example, the Bactrian heavy cavalry, a prominent part of the ancient Achaemenid Persian armies that had fought ancient Greece. Indeed, the Bactrian nobility were famous as one of the most tenacious opponents of Alexander the Great and had been the last part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire to be subjugated by Alexander. After his death, when the Macedonian Empire broke up, A Greco-Bactrian kingdom sprang up, mixing Greek culture with Persian and even invading India to set up an Indo-Greek state that is best remembered for its unique fusion of Greek and Buddhist art and philosophy. In the 1st century AD, this Greco-Bactrian state was overrun by steppe nomads called the Kushans, who adopted many of the more civilised attributes of their new subjects, together with establishing a highly profitable monopoly of the growing Silk Road trade between China and Europe. This developed so well that the Kushan kingdom became wealthy and, according to Chinese sources, underwent an explosion of growth in art, philosophy and science. With the emergence of a powerful Sasanian dynasty in the 3rd century AD, Shapur I conquered the Kushan state and then incorporated it into the Sasanian empire, but granting it considerable autonomy with its ruler given the honorary title of Kushan Shah, king of the Kushans, and the right to mint its own coinage. Indeed, the plentiful supply of surviving Kushan coins today provides one of the best historical records of this forgotten state. However, the Roman sources say that in Bahram II's reign, the Kushano-Sasanian state broke away from the Sasanian Empire. The story goes that Bahram II's brother, called Hormizd, who was the governor of the Kushan state, and who, by the way, was not the same Hormizd who succeeded Shapur I, rebelled against him. Although we have almost no further information about this conflict, it seems likely that the breakaway Kushan state was a thorn in the side of Bahram II, not just because there was a long frontier with this hostile state, but also because it probably acted as a focal point for resistance to his rule. I mean, who wants to have their brother running a rival kingdom right next to their own? We also know that the frontier with Bactria was just as strategically important to the Sasanians as Armenia and Syria were in the West. 
For example, probably the main reason for the let-up in Sasanian aggression against Rome in the later 4th century was due to the appearance of new steppe nomads in the 360s and 70s called the Kidarites, who actually overran the Kushano-Sasanian state, but then came to pose an even bigger threat by raiding into the eastern territories of the Sasanian Empire. And they would in due course be replaced by the even more dangerous steppe nomads called the Hephthalites or White Huns in the 5th century who would dominate Sasanian history just as much as Attila the Hun would dominate Roman history. However, let me stop there because I'm jumping ahead of myself since these are all subjects for later episodes. So to conclude about the reasons for Sasanian decline during the reigns of Diocletian and Constantine, the other main reason was, of course, the extraordinary resurgence in Rome's military fortunes under the Illyrian emperors. In particular, Rome's reversion to superpower status under Diocletian led to a complete restoration of Roman military dominance over Persia, with his Caesar in the east, Galerius, defeating the new Sharan Shah Narsay, who succeeded Baran II in 293, and agreeing the peace of Nisibis in 299, which was especially humiliating for the Sasanians, since it involved considerable territorial concessions, for example, recognising the Tigris as the Roman-Persian frontier and ceding five satrapies, that's uh, the word that the Persians use for their provinces, west of the Tigris to Rome, and in addition to agreeing Roman control of Armenia and Georgia, which was called Iberia by the Romans. Indeed, the peace of Nisibis was so advantageous for the Romans that it looked as if the power of the Sasanians had been well and truly broken. However, unfortunately for the Romans, this did not prove to be the case. For after 40 years of peace, which of course allowed Constantine to indulge in the civil wars with his rivals, which ended with his becoming sole emperor, there emerged a new and very different Persia. And the reason for this was the accession of one of the greatest Persian Sharanshahs or King of Kings ever. His name was Shapur the second. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And in the next episode, we'll move on to the reign of Constantine's son, Constantius II, as he battled with a revived Persia led by the great Shapur II. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>